0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to this episode of Corner Table Talk. I'm your host, Brad Johnson, and we are exploring subjects related to food plus drink plus culture. And uh, as always, with questions or comments about our show, you can reach me at brad at hospitality.com So one of my main objectives in the guests that we book on our podcast is to shed light on the role of the restaurateur within the uh, hospitality world over the last several decades as the business of restaurants has become ever more popular the most celebrated member of the hospitality community has been the chef hence the rise of the ubiquitous celebrity chef usually the tour who the responsibility it is to locate, select a location, negotiate a lease and or purchase property, contributes personally and or raises funds, creates a business plan, oversees design and construction, often before the chef is even in the picture. That is not to say that one is more important than the other, and sometimes that person is the same person, as we know there are some chef operators too. That's a lot of responsibility. And uh, often though, these roles are two individuals, both fulfilling essential roles in the birth and operation of a restaurant. Cyrus Batchan is a Los Angeles-based restaurateur and owner of Number 8 Hospitality, a global hospitality and development group. He currently operates several places, including the very popular Koreatown spot, Lock and Key, Lorea, which is in Las Vegas, Sky and East West Brewery, both in Vietnam, of all places. And we're going to dive into that a little bit. I want to hear some of that backstory. Cyrus recently opened the very buzzy Arts District Restaurant Camp 4, which replaced his hit at that location previously, Nightshade. His places have received impressive out- accolades from various food press, including Eater LA, The Rob Report, Food and Wine, and GQ. Of course, for all restaurant tours, the past two years have been grueling on multiple fronts. An article from LA Weekly in November of 2021 illustrates some of the obstacles Cyrus has had to overcome and still, you know, remain optimistic about the business. So, quote, from that article, in the last 18 months, Koreatown Lock and Key Bar owner Cyrus Batchan has endured mandatory closures and reopenings, multiple fires and robberies. He's come face to face with endless insurance company battles, as well as the vandals that ransacked and stole everything out of his beloved neighborhood bar, including the light fixtures. Still, he says, quote, the universe is on his side, end quote. So let's get into it today with my chef, with my guest, Cyrus Batchin. Cyrus, thanks so much, man, for taking the time and joining me. I appreciate you. Thank you
1: for having me and giving me the opportunity to pleasure. speak. Before
0: we get started, I wanted to give a special shout out to your sister, Celessa Baker, who actually is the one who initiated an introduction that led to my starting a podcast. So thank you and shout out to Celeste. And she also introduced me to you. So uh, yeah. I wanted to give her a little special shout out.
1: Master connector. Big sense.
0: Master <laughs> connector, yeah. So we get things going here with what I call our short order questions. So let me fire a few of those at you. Cyrus, what is on the playlist at your new place, Camp 4? And who programs the music?
1: At Camp 4, the, new, the current playlist, we're actually doing a lot of French hip hop. And it is a collaboration with one of our guests, one of my partners and myself, just curating and selecting a lot of uh, French hip hop since it is a French restaurant.
0: That's very cool, man. MC Solar, is he one of MC Solar is in there. There's Hocus
1: Pocus. We have Ragasonic, which is like a, a reggae group. So getting through, the, getting through the laundry list of some amazing French hip hop,
0: so. I love that, man. That, that's really cool. Tell me, what is your morning Beverage. What's the first thing you're consuming, liquid-wise, when you?
1: Uh, generally, a glass of cold water, followed by coffee, then followed by orange juice.
0: <laughs> the tree, the trifecta. But, yeah. How about your exercise routine? What are you doing uh, besides walking around restaurants at night to keep yourself um, physically fit?
1: You know, that is one of the restaurant tours' biggest challenges. I think is always that work-life balance because you always seem sucked in and having a quiet moment is is. They're few and far between, but right now, uh, a lot of walking with my two beautiful dogs, and then trying to get myself back into my gym routine. So, but you know, the opening of a restaurant, you're always all the way in. So we're we're in the oh, first yeah. six weeks. So right now, it's like gym is taking a break, and it's ten thousand steps a day in the restaurant plus the dog walking.
0: Yeah, man. I you know when I think about how much mileage I put on my body in the 30 plus years in the restaurant industry of, you know, every night on the floor. I could tell you my, my left knee and my hip, you know, <laughs> they, they remind me of, yep. uh, of that excess mileage. Absolutely. Yeah. So tell me last great meal at a restaurant that you don't own.
1: Last great meal at a restaurant that I don't own let's see actually there's a there's a really good shabu shabu place that i enjoy it's one of my favorites actually closing here in la called kagaya i think he's been in business for 20 plus years the owner's retiring and i think that was the that was last week actually so that was phenomenal it's always it's always a hit it's a one-man show i mean he has a team but he's making like an eight or nine course meal for you at a counter love
0: that man good one and tell me if you can name name something that you most love about Los Angeles? You know, Los Angeles for me, I've, I've
1: traveled the world. I've actually traveled more outside the U.S. than I have it inside the U.S. And for me, Los Angeles it is that kind of perfect balance of I can get out of the city, head up the coast to Malibu, get to the beach. I, I love to snowboard so I can be a mammoth in a few hours. So I think the beauty of Los Angeles, not only the, the fact that it's an extremely kind of like multicultural city, and all the great food, but it's also this great access to different parts of, of nature really oh, yeah. centrally located. So yeah. The
0: microclimate access is, is amazing, man. I was yeah. in LA a couple of weeks ago. We were out in the desert and snow capped mountains and it was yeah. 75 and the desert and just the skies is so clear and beautiful, man. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 I love that about LA too. So Cyrus, let's let's jump in here. And clearly, you know, we've talked a lot about this on the show in the last year. Of course, the pandemic, you know, has had a profound effect on our industry. And it's it's well documented, you know, the hardship that it brought on our industry. And I have to say, though, based on the quote that I read from LA Weekly, your case, you know, you had some pretty unique challenges in LA, in addition to the openings and closings. And you also voiced some frustration with the, with the help, you know, when you're looking for help, kind of falling on deaf ears from local officials. And I, I want to talk about your perseverance, but before we do, describe what you've experienced in the last couple of years and how you've managed to keep your businesses afloat. And also too, as part two to that question, since you do business internationally, how have those businesses fared in the last, uh, you know, 18 to 24 months?
1: Right. So, You know, domestically, obviously, we all kind of, oddly enough, I was actually coming back from Vietnam, February of 2020. So that was the beginnings of the grumbling of the pandemic. I arrived in in LA. And like most people, we thought we were insulated. And then it quickly snowballed as I was seeing things develop in Asia, because I had, you know, a real direct line of communication to my businesses there. And as I saw things snowball, the challenges, you know, for me, were living at a place where I saw continuous growth. You know, I think we were all in a boom. The L.A. restaurant scene was booming. I was looking at multiple opportunities, other leases on the table, and then, you know, the world kind of slamming its brakes on and, you know, not for one month, but for what ended up being a couple of years. So, you know, the challenges of just being a restaurateur who was trying to figure out the regulations as we went along, coupled with, you know, Lock and Key, which is, you know, my longest standing business at this point, you know. Three days after the first stay at home order was initiated, we were ready for alcohol to go service countless hours. And I woke up to a phone call with all my staff saying, Hey, are you looking at the citizen app? There's a fire next to lock and key drove down, see the building, you know, literally with a zero property line engulfed in flames right next to, to what was my kitchen at the time. And I'm just sitting here thinking like, wow. Is the world really, you know, this cruel at this moment? I've got a, a baby on the way, I've got businesses that are shut down, you know, globally we don't know what this looks like. So those were were the real challenges initially was just kind of the gut check moment of, you know, what do you do here and how do you keep how do you keep going? So that, that was the real, real first challenge. And that's kind of something we went through the entire time. Internationally, we are actually just now getting Vietnam back open. And Vietnam is a situation where you know, there were no PPP loans. You know, the government did the best that they, they could, but it was just a country that just went into complete lockdown. They were the first country to ban any international travel. So they literally shut down the flights, I think one or two weeks after I left. You could not leave the country. And the only people that could come in were, were Vietnamese citizens, and that was few and far between. Um, so we're actually just in the process of getting open. But then we're now dealing with some other challenges because most of the tourists that come to Vietnam are European. And so with everything going on in Ukraine, you know, we're, we're going to be losing out some access to certain tourist markets right now.
0: Wow, man. That's, that's a lot. And, you know, I, wanna, I mean, you mentioned the phrase gut check. That was part of my, my next question because, I mean, I know as restauranteurs, I mean, we possess a special brand of optimism that you know may be unique to uh to our team and that we go into areas that you know previously were off limits for whatever reason and we look at a building and think oh hey this will make a great restaurant i think you know folks when you probably thought about lock and key at that location probably tilted their head sideways and said you know what the hell is cyrus thinking this is not a, a great you know area for a bar but you saw something but when you when you were going through that, Cyrus, in the midst of you know so much uncertainty and just one kind of setback after another, the fire, and then you you got robbed, and I mean people stole the light fixtures from from your place, and I and I also read where you at, at one point uh, somehow came face to face with the folks that had done it, and the, your good sense told you that you could recover from the robbery, but better probably not to confront uh, confront those folks. But just what, what was going on? Man? What what was your inner dialogue like during that period that just made you, you know, put your head down and just get back to work?
1: You know, so it was weird. Like I I have these moments thinking back of it now. And I always think about that. What am I going to tell my son about this time? Because I think it's just a moment in history. And obviously I had a unique set of of circumstances. I think at that time, it was the first thing that kicked in was instinct. The instinct of a restaurateur, which is, or a business person, which is stay busy. So the very first thing I did, you know, was, okay, how are we going to plan these to-go drinks? Then after that, the fire happened. I didn't have a kitchen. I wasn't really even thinking about that. I started um, utilizing some funds that I had access to, to just buy meals. And I started supporting other businesses. So I figured, you know, I'm in a place where I'm at least healthy. That, you know, I was going out to other food trucks. We did, you know, pop up with some brothers in South Central one day where we fed 100 people. I just covered the cost of the meals. So I, I, I think the business mind kicked in, which is almost like a shock. And I think that's the reaction that restaurateurs, especially always have is, you gotta keep running, right? So whatever the issue is or the problem is, the fryer is not working today. Go grab a pot, get some oil in it. Let's you know fire. Let's create a let's create a deep fryer because we have to sell this dish. So I think it was that instinctual, which is very ingrained in most restaurateurs, which is keep going, keep going, keep going. And I liken it now when I think about as what a marathon runner must go through when they're in the last mile stretch, right? You don't think about that at mile one but you're thinking about it throughout the entire race, right? You get into that last kilometer or mile, got to keep going, got to keep going. So when I, when I set back now and think about it, it was that is I looked at all these challenges as things that could be overcome and whether I was really honed in on it, or it was just basically in, ingrained in my DNA as a restaurateur, which is keep it pushing, just
0: go, go, go. And, and, you know, I think it's a, what strikes me too about what you're saying is not only did you, did you, you know, keep it going, but you know, your instinct was to do something to take care of other people, you know, in the midst of all that was going on, and I, I think that's pretty telling. I mean, I think as a as a restaurateur, one of the one of the you know you have to have at the heart and soul of of you know how you move is the desire, you know, it's, it's hospitality, man. Uh, yeah. You know, we're in the business to make sure everybody else is okay.
1: Yep. Yeah, that was my my first thought was that when the pandemic hit, I went to the grocery store across the street from the house saw everything going on, I immediately called my US Foods purveyor, which is the largest purveyor, said, I need to order all these like shelf stable products, because I want to get my staff taken care of. That was the first, first, I guess, thing that I did. And then after that, it was just, you know, looking for those opportunities, because that is hospitality, right? That's what we do every day, is take care of guests that come in. And whether people, you know, look at it that way or not, you know, if you're really a true hospitality person, that is, I look at every guest as somebody who's coming into my home whether they know who I am or not, and I want to give them that best experience. So that I think, you know, again, it's in the DNA. So it just came out in a different way.
0: Yeah, man. And you know, I and I and I, I'm reminded of how we spend so many plates and yet we keep a cool front, you know, to the customer. You never want them to know the drama that may be unfolding behind the scenes that's making, you know, your job a little more difficult, but you know, you can't, you can't let them see you sweat, so to speak. So I think we, we do, we do that well. We camouflage exactly. the stress well, hopefully not to our, to our own detriment. So Cyrus, I want to get in a little bit before we go further in your professional background, just get into your, your family life. Cause your, your background is really, really interesting. The, the mix of your parents So your dad, is African-American, and your mom is first-generation Iranian-American. You grew up in Moreno Valley, which is about an hour, I think, outside of L.A. That's Riverside County, right? Yeah. Correct. Yeah. So if you don't mind, man, tell, tell, tell us a little bit about your folks. How did your parents meet? What was like, what was life like in your home growing up? What kind of food was crossing that dinner table? What were the conversations like? I know your dad inspired you. There were, there's restaurant tours in your family. Talk a little bit about the family
1: life. You know, family life. My parents met, I think I want to say 1973. So my dad actually was from Orange, Texas, which is the last city East, Southeast Texas, before you cross into Louisiana. So right on the border, I think 10 miles from the border of Louisiana. If you look up my family name, it's all basically Orange, Texas and Lake Charles, Louisiana. So great food country for sure. So that the food was very important. But my dad, I think when he graduated high school, ended up joining the army because I think, you know, in the 60s, like a lot of brothers at that time was like, that was your out of, of the South. Like, where did you get to go? And then ended up in Germany, was, had a great aptitude. My dad had a, a, a wonderful mind for mathematics and science, was a radio engineer programmer. And then when he, his contract came up in the army, he decided Vietnam or <laughs> look for another opportunity. He got hired by, at that time, Western Union, who was doing the teletypes, and they sent him to Iran. And so he was in Iran in the early 70s, Teaching, working on the the communication systems in Iran, and then ended up meeting. He he got a big project where he repaired something. They wanted to bring him to meet. I think one of the like advisors to the Shah. My mom had happened to be the person who's doing his paperwork. So they met, you know, hit it off, romance. And then my sister was actually born in Iran. They left Iran in '74 to come to the U.S. to go to school, and then he wanted to get his master finish college, get his master's, and they wanted to return to Iran. Revolution happened. They went from San Francisco, ended up from Marina Valley. And at that time, you know, kind of growing up, my mom at first was a cosmetologist. Then, you know, my dad had a, had a love for cooking. My mom always says she learned to cook because she had a family. And they ended up looking outside of the cosmetology world for my mom, and they started jumping into restaurants. So food in my family was definitely the binder, you know, we were, my dad was old school, you know, no TV, family meals are together. You know, at some point in life, he was building smokers in the backyard doing his own boudin because he's like, you can't find good boudin here. So food was the glue that definitely held us together. And it was everything from Persian food to to soul food to Thai food to, you know, smoking turkeys in this homemade smoker for the neighborhood on the weekend. So you know, any genre of food. My dad literally would get us in the car every weekend and we would just drive to eat. So we would drive to LA Tide Town in the 80s. And I'm like, you know, Thomas guy. And he's like, well, you got a page E four and you got to go left here and right here. And I think about it now, I was like, how are you finding these places? You know, there was no Google, no nothing, but you know, that was that was a big part of our life was, you know, kind of that that food. And it was all any food, any good food was was game for the family. So
0: such a great background and such a great story, you know, but the whole thing, how they met and the circumstances and, you know, the, the life now in California. Tell me, uh, Cyrus, as, as someone of mixed ethnicity growing up and going to school, did you did you feel different? Were you received differently? Were people curious about if they saw your mom and dad together? I asked for personal reasons and my, my mom was Italian, my dad was black, so I certainly Felt some of those things myself. But I'm I'm curious what your experience was.
1: Yeah. So we went, like oddly enough, the first, I think until sixth grade, no, actually till fifth grade, went my sister and I actually went to a private Baptist school out in Paris that was on my way on, on the way of to my father's job. And I think there were one, we were two of five African Americans in the school. And then, you know, after that, we transferred into public school. And it is, it's that, it's that interesting identity. We were doing, you know, Persian family parties on the weekend. Most of my dad's family was up in Oakland or San Diego. So we would like take time to jot out there, different cultural experience. And it was the idea when people looked at us as, are you Dominican? Are you Hispanic? Are you this, are you that? And, you know, I, and even in high school, I was, I think my senior high school, I was president of the BSU and I would go to conventions and it's almost like, oh, it's the light skinner brother. Like you're not necessarily. <laughs> Did you
0: get the what are you question?
1: Exactly. <laughs> like, oh, is he, is he Puerto Rican? So, you know, it's, it's definitely an interesting, I think, experience kids of mixed backgrounds go through because it's the idea sometimes of are you black enough? Are you this enough? Are you that enough? And how do you identify, you know, the experiences that I've had as a, I consider myself a black man, even though I have, you know, of Persian descent as well, the experiences that I've had, whether it be with, you know, being profiled or anything like that, those are very unique to us as a, as a, as a culture and you get those. So it doesn't matter. I don't think it matters the complexion, you know, it is, it is how you identify and all the things you go through. And sometimes we have it pretty rough being of, of a mixed
0: descent, I would say. It cuts both ways, man. You know, you yeah, yeah it def, without a doubt. So and nice. you know, I want to, I want to come back to how I admire that. You know, so far, at least to this point, your your ventures, your restaurant ventures, you really just kind of there's no box you put yourself in in terms of the cuisine limitations. In it. But I, I want to come back to that. How did the extended families get along? Your dads and your moms. It was everybody cool with with the, uh, with the blend. Immediate.
1: Like my mother, my grandmother, uh, grandfather, uncles, all very cool. I think some, my mom actually was at one point forced to change her name by some of her uncles and my great uncles, because they're like, no, our family can't marry outside of Iranian culture. So, you know, they had that experience as well. But my immediate, um, immediate family, my grandmother, you know, super religious person. She, they, they're practiced, they were practicing Muslims when she was alive. And I remember her coming here at one time and telling my mom we were driving right when we got back from LAX and she's told my mom she wanted to pray because it was prayer time. And she's like, what is that building? My mom said, that's oh, a church, but it's a Christian church. She's like, God is God, you know, pull over. I need to go pray. And so that was, you know, my my immediate, my grandmother, grandfather, that was them. They're extremely religious people, but also very just, you know, welcoming and open and even keel people. And right is right, fair is fair. You know, the moral compass was was... True North.
0: So, how, how has that informed your worldview given that uh, experience as a, as a kid growing up in that, in that kind of environment?
1: I think, I think it's that is it is, you know, that idea of right is right, right? And always just look for the opportunity to do the best and give the best, it, you know, looking past anything and everything. And I, I look at that first and foremost, I think, with especially my work family, and it, it is always taking care of them making sure that they're good, making sure they have the opportunities they need, making sure they're treated, you know, fairly, doling out doling out business advice to the employee who's on his way out the door. You know, just always trying to look for that opportunity to give something back, I think. All right.
0: All right. So moving forward a little bit here. So you studied law uh, and real estate at, uh, San Diego School of Law. And then it, those are you know pretty valuable skill sets when it, when it comes to the restaurant world and negotiating or purchasing real estate, and negotiating leases, what have you. And while at the San Diego School of Law, you blended your passions and you became the director of bars and nightlife for the W Hotel in San Diego. And additionally, you had a successful nightlife events company. So you're going to law school, you're running hospitality venues at the W and an events business. When did you sleep? I
1: didn't sleep. And technically in law school, you're not supposed to work more than 40 hours, um, but I was definitely working more than 40 hours. So I, I kind of got my first year of law school, you do what's called an oral argument at the end of the year, part of your legal research class. And I won this, I won this argument. And one of the judges, it was like two professors and one of the judges happened to be an attorney. And you typically get an internship maybe after your first year and you get a paid internship in your second year. Well, after that argument, the professor, that judge reached out to my professor and said, I want to offer Cyrus a paid internship. And he's like, well, he's a first year. He's like, no, I want to offer him paid internship. So I took this internship working at this law firm, huge law firm, Wilson, Mos- M- Moser, El- Edelman and Dickers, like five names. They did insurance defense for large, like pharmaceutical companies. At the time, I think it was like Herbalife or something, one of those companies. So I was working there and on my way to lunch one day, I see the W opening up. And I just like, oh wow, I know the W because at the time my sister was doing the music thing in LA, so we were always, you know, on the weekends, we were up at the, what, Randy Gerber's bar at the W in Westwood. And I was like, this would be a cool place to work. Popped in, did an interview. And then got the gig initially as a concierge. And then they promoted me into like booking DJs and gave me this bump up, but very quickly decided that I was more passionate about that opportunity versus being stuck in this office and a suit during the day, and then just made the pivot. And then from there it was the DJs I was booking started doing events and really took that opportunity to just kind of sew myself back into what I've always known, you know, I grew up in restaurants. Grew up in hospitality. You know, my mom was always hosting large gatherings, and my parents kept asking me, "What are you doing? What are you doing?" And my response to them was, "I've been in you know this industry since I was five years old. What do you expect me to do? It's just it's innate to me, right? And it actually brings me joy.
0: You felt that. So, did your family actually own restaurants?
1: Yeah. So growing up. I think, you know, my parents were probably involved in no less than like maybe 10 or 15 restaurants, all small mom and pops, but, you know, most, actually almost every single restaurant that my family has been involved in, even though they've sold it, they're still in existence today. So I think they opened their first, first restaurant on their own in 81 was a Mexican restaurant called El Toro, which is now now called the Mexican kitchen. And that was, you know, I spent the better part of my life kind of growing up my sister and I in that, that restaurant better part of like 10 or 15 years.
0: That's very cool, man. So, all right, so, the, so you, you get the bug again. It was something that was already, the groundwork was laid, obviously, from your childhood. And uh, you walk into the W, you, you, you feel inspired again to, to re-engage with the industry. And in 2012, you started the, I think it was 2012, you started uh, number eight, Hospitality and opened Lock and Key in Koreatown. So Cyrus, how, how did that come about, man? What, what was it about Koreatown? Why that particular location? Talk a little bit about how that deal came together for you.
1: So yeah, at that time, I was, I was kind of working with, I was actually working with Hill Harper, helping him with some managing some real estate uh, projects. And a lot of the projects happened to be in Koreatown we were kind of going through. And I had a I had a subset of friends who happened to be Korean. So we would spend, you know, kind of weekends eating out there really harkening me back to my childhood, finding these great places. And then I started looking at the, the the demographic of what the market was and where the market was going from a business perspective. Right. And I really looked at it. People tell me now they're like, you looked at it almost like a McDonald's play. It's like you're looking at the, the ground and saying, what does this ground need? And then I started looking at my friends when we would finish eating dinner, they would say, hey, like, we got to go to Hollywood. Or, hey, we got to go to downtown LA, which I think at that time Varnish and these bars were opening. And I scratched my head. I said, look, Koreatown is centrally located. It's smack dab in the middle between Hollywood and downtown. You can get to the west side very easy, not far from West Hollywood. All these you know, starving actors and actresses that are moving into LA, where are they living? Where's the cheap rent? But where do they want to go and what do they need and what do they want? You know they they want a better or cooler experience so i really looked at it that way and then got sucked back into koreatown to me has a very cool cross-section of la it's extremely centrally located and i think it has you know some very specific history you know for 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 me part of my experience in la so i really wanted to find a location and literally on the work to a project site one day just drove past the building i was like huh this might be it. And had had an
0: existing bar restaurant,
1: it was was a karaoke bar, it Mm -hmm. was an existing karaoke bar. And I just looked at it. And it you know, like you said earlier, it's the weird thing about being a restaurateur. And I I always ask myself, does everybody have it? But I know certain people do. It's like you just see something or you walk into a space. And you just close your eyes. And you're like, this is it. And you can't really articulate what that means in that moment. But you just know. And so when I did the first walkthrough with the broker, literally had that moment. I was like, give me a, give me a quiet second in here alone. And I was like, all right, this is it.
0: Like just new. Oh, was- yeah, I can completely relate to that, man. It, it is, it's a an instinct about a space, you know, yeah. and, and not in its current form, but what bone with the bones how the bones speak to you and then what your vision you know if you're sitting there and thinking about what it could you know transform into how big a space is rock and key square footage
1: it is it's like a little bit under three thousand square feet like 2900 square feet with mm-hmm. a with a
0: patio and was there something architecturally about the space that spoke to you was it high ceilings or no didn't have high ceilings that I could,
1: I'll share some photos with you after it was it was chopped up and people like still scratch their head it was chopped up into eight karaoke rooms so we took it down to the studs and just reenvisioned it first I think it was location and the fact that it did have a patio because to me that was one of the things it's like a rooftop in New York a lot of places in LA don't have rooftops or patios at that time 10 years ago especially that I, I felt it was something that was missing, so I had that opportunity, and then I just felt major thoroughfare, easy access to the freeway. You know, that was right before Uber blew up; people were still driving, and I thought this is easy to get to. So parking, no parking, and that was the crate. That was what everybody told me: you
0: have no parking, but we made it work. And then Uber took off, so I was like you don't need parking. <laughs> it became LA, <laughs> became more like more like New York in that. Yeah, way. and and what about financing? How were you able to pull together the funds? It literally, I mean, that was
1: bootstrapped. I did that project for a few hundred grand, took what savings I had, tapped into some family members, some friends, and just literally bootstrapped it down to the day that business opened. I think I took like my last few thousand dollars out of the bank just to make change for the register. And it was, you know, a Vegas, it was, we we're rolling like Vegas. It was just, okay. It's like, put it back down. Oh, we got, we got, we got aces. Let's split. Let's just go. Let's go. Let's go. So I, I literally <laughs> remember sitting in the table, just thinking to myself, I just took my last X amount of money out of the bank in order to like wager it on this, just to put money so in the open up and what happens? Opened up very positive feedback. And then a week in serendipity struck Anthony Bourdain's no reservations show aired for CNN. And the first episode's Koreatown. Didn't know that was going to happen. And then the phone is ringing off the hook. New York Times, Wall Street Journal, everybody thought, what is Koreatown? I need to know about it because we just got this national platform. So it was a little bit of, I guess, you know, the icing on the cake for me, but also just validation to the idea that I already knew that Koreatown was that cool. And so we just happened to be there at the moment. And then Anthony de Bourdain comes on and says, yes, Koreatown is that
0: cool. I love it, man. I love it. Your instinct is uh, is right on the money. That was a great call. So the success of lock and key led to opportunities, as we earlier alluded to in Vietnam. And it's interesting to me because you hadn't been in business that long. So talk a little bit about the Vietnam opportunities, how those came about. And that's a that's a big leap. It's not like doing Koreatown in Santa Monica. You know, you're talking about you know Koreatown and then Vietnam. It's a, that's a lot of travel. How how'd that happen?
1: So I like. I've honestly spent you know when i was doing
0: my undergrad my
1: my education path and I, I really told this story to somebody the other day was i all honestly saw myself becoming a diplomat i sat for the foreign service exam many times i had an international relations major i i wanted to go to john hopkins for a graduate degree i looked at studying abroad at american university in cairo so i always had this like travel bug and an idea of doing something you know outside of the us and so when i really go back and think about it i was always kind of pushing myself with this idea of like traveling and doing things abroad, it just came in a different form. But Vietnam specifically, when I opened Lock and Key, cocktail culture at that time was just really booming in LA. And I tell people, you know, 20 years ago when people wanted to open a cocktail bar, they looked to London, they maybe looked into New York, San Francisco has always had an underground scene, and then Portland came on later. And I really looked at who are are we serving here, right? I felt like L.A. has a much greater connection to Asia versus New York, right? It's a direct connect. Looking at some of my clientele, you know, a lot of, they call them American-born Chinese, Taiwanese, things like that. And cocktail culture hadn't taken off in Asia yet. So I was looking at this strictly as, I love to travel. I have a lot of friends in Asia. What's the opportunity? How can I make this connection? So the original idea was actually Taiwan. That was a direct connect. And so two year, a year and a half after opening, I planned a trip. It was my first time to get out of L.A. to go to Taiwan. A really good friend of mine was like, hey, I'm moving back to Vietnam. You're going to be in Asia. Come visit me. So hopped on a plane, went to, to Vietnam first. I meet their father, who I who I'd known previously, who moved back to, to Vietnam, was a boat person. And they were actually planning on building a hotel. So we spent a week literally going from North Vietnam all the way to South Vietnam talking life business just the three of us my partner the, his father and myself and they landed on this town that Chang they bought a piece of property and they're like we're gonna we're gonna do a hotel here I left I go to tai- Taiwan I arrive in Taipei I have great meetings I see some some good friends we find a location I fly home and I tell everybody at that time December of 2015 2014, I was like, I'm moving to Taiwan in December and I'm gonna make sure I can live there and then I'm I'm gonna open lock and key there. A week after I arrive, my friend texts me, he's like, Hey, my dad wants to talk to you. Get on the phone, and he he tells me, he's like, Hey, Cyrus, you know, listen, my sons are not ready for business. He's like, You're like their brother. He's like, I see a lot of you and me. He's like, I don't know anything about the bar business, but I think I found a location. We're not ready for a hotel come back to Vietnam tomorrow. And I was like, this is June. I said, yeah, I can't, I can't get back to Vietnam tomorrow. He's like, no, you have to come. I was like, I'll come back in a, you know, a couple of weeks because I have to resettle everything. I then booked a flight, I think 4th of July weekend. I was like, I can get away. I arrived in Vietnam, July 3rd, 2014. 24 hour flight, door to door. I was planning on being there for three days only just to see this location drive straight to the airport, take me, they take me straight to the location, which is a rooftop, bring me up to the rooftop, we're looking around. I did the same thing I did at Lock and Key. It was like, give me a minute up here alone. And then I walked down the stairs, go to my friend's dad, I said, where do we sign? And he's like, oh, funny you say that because the owner of the hotel is downstairs. And I'm like, I'm in a Lock and Key t-shirt, baseball cap and shorts. And I I was like, no, no, I need to go, you know, change into a suit and we got to negotiate. He's like, this is Vietnam, it's okay. And we literally walked down after that 24-hour flight into one of the conference rooms and on a napkin, it's you know the owner of this hotel who owns hundreds of millions of dollars of real estate, myself, my partners, and we're scratching out the lease on the back of a napkin in this restaurant. So it was As a crazy a
0: experience. Yeah. <laughs> and how soon after that did you open? And we
1: opened, the, the funny thing is, sorry, that was July 5th. We opened July 3rd. 2015 so sight unseen in one year 40 story rooftop without access to a crane we built this this business literally from an idea into opening a welcome to our first guest in less than a year and that's when i had the, the bug i think at that point for vietnam because you know as a restaurateur and as a, a business person when you develop especially in a city like la it's like you could spend a year in permits yeah right it was we're building a bar here, boom, let's make it happen. And we built it to an international standard, but it was just the regulations there. But if you're able to kind of navigate them and you're, you're basically presenting a good plan, the kind of the doors open up and allow you
0: to basically be an entrepreneur. And what was the response from the public?
1: Response was great. At the time we opened, I think we were the highest rooftop bar in Vietnam. We were in a tourist market. We saw some challenges. The, I think the Russian market was the number one tourist market. When we first opened, the ruble collapsed. Then Chinese and Europeans came in. So we're definitely a, a tourist market. I would tell everybody, it's like doing business on a cruise ship. You have a captive audience for three days, and then they leave, and then they come back. So in some ways, it's a bit more forgiving, but then the demand is extremely high because people are there for three days. They're all, all about consumption. I want to eat, drink. I want to go You know, see what the nightlife is. And we built a place that is multifaceted. It's a has an observation deck. So during the day we let people come up. We have a, a skywalk with binoculars. You can kind of see the whole, see the whole bay. And then in the evening it turns into a restaurant and nightlife.
0: Very cool, man. Very cool. All right. So let's let's come back to LA. You opened Nightshade in 2018, I believe. 18, yeah. We were working on that space, I think,
1: looking for a location and everything. Basically it took us almost Two years, 2016 to 2018. We opened softly, opened December 2018 to like a private party, and then we actually opened January 2nd, 2019.
0: So you said you were looking for that space. So you had a concept in mind that needed a location, or what what came first, a location? So the, the, the idea, I had a, the
1: idea was we were looking for another location to do an expansion. No chef, what like kind of what you alluded to earlier? No chef, no nothing. Going to open a restaurant, find a location, and then somewhere along the way, we identified a chef and then we were just, we were in deal, in a deal in Hancock Park originally that fell through. And then this other location became,
0: became available. Right. So you work with um, a top chef winner at uh, Nightshade, my Lynn, I think her name was, mm-hmm. right. Yep. And prior to working with you, she was the uh, sous chef at the really popular, but short-lived uh, Michael Potaggio Restaurant Inc. I never made it there. And I, I know it's Wasn't around. They had some partnership issues and and that place didn't last. And so one of the things that I mentioned earlier, I just want to tap into because I admire your your willingness to not be constrained by feeling like as a black man, you need to do a certain kind of restaurant, either cuisine wise, design wise, or even where you choose to go. And in this case, you bring in uh, Maylon. You do this this concept for Nightshade. It's a big hit. A lot of accolades. People loved it. So, tell does, does how how do you approach that? Do you do you just not see yourself inside of any kind of box in terms of how you define what it is you should be doing? You just feel free to do whatever you think the market has an appetite for, or you have personal appetite.
1: For. Right. I think it's I think it's a little bit of both. I'm. Um, I'm always reminded of something my dad said to me. He went to, obviously, an all-Black school in Orange, Texas, right? Segregation existed for when he was growing up. And he always told me this idea of, you know, always preach Black excellence, right? Which is, just because I went to an all-Black school didn't mean we were not excellent. We were excellent, and we were the best at whatever we wanted to do. He was amazing in mathematics. His brother was an all-star athlete. So I was raised, I think, in an environment where you don't set boundaries for yourself, even though one generation, and I always tell people this, one generation before me, and there are still boundaries that exist now, but one generation before me, those boundaries were as black and white as they could possibly be, right? So my dad always pushed this idea of just being excellent in whatever you were going to do, right? And it didn't matter what that was. You decided that for yourself. So when I look at things... You know, and I look at a location, when I look at an opportunity in this industry as a restaurateur or as a chef or as an operator, I think ego gets the better part of a lot of people. And I've always tried to remove the sense of ego and look at things from a brass tax. Is this a good business decision? And so when I look at an opportunity or I'm looking forward to create an opportunity, I really look at it as a business decision of there's a hole in the market let's fill it let's put the parts together let's let's do it so i think that is why you know I, I and it's funny if you come to lock and key and you have an experience there and you go to now what's camfor you have experience there very different they're extremely different right a lot of the customers that go to camfor would not want would not enjoy a night out at lock and key on a certain level because it's young it's loud it's boisterous but that doesn't mean they're both individually great businesses so i think that is you know, taking that life lesson and just really looking at things from a business perspective is we shouldn't. You know, I shouldn't feel that I have to be forced into a box. And I was talking to a young brother the other day about that. Is the idea that yeah, why why does it always have to be? If they're looking for for us, do I need to? Do I have to own a soul food restaurant? Do I have to own like a, a Caribbean restaurant? No, I could just I can be a successful businessman, just like you know Jerry Lorenzo can be a successful designer. We it really should come. It should be greater than, you know, how you see us because we just have maybe a talent or something that we want to contribute. So when I look at businesses, I don't look at pigeonholing myself. I can open an ice cream shop. I can open a coffee shop. I
0: just want to do good business. I that, man. So um, Mei Ling, what was it about her food, Cyrus, that, that appealed to you? Did you do tastings with her and she won we did your not,
1: We didn't taste anything. I had a business partner at the, at the time that had, 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 had met her. And, you know, he made the connection and we just kind of took a gamble at that, honestly. And the gamble, gamble paid
0: off. Yeah. Now, I know that relationship unraveled a bit. Talk about whatever you're comfortable talking about. But I'm really interested in uh, what your takeaway was from the experience with what you went through there.
1: You know, I think every business you, you know, you know, we had... The, the pandemic obviously hit, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. So there's just, you know, differences of opinion or vision or whatever it may be. The, the takeaway for me, I think in that, like any business relationship is that it's okay for people to go their separate ways. It's okay to do new things. And it, you know, it's not always going to be destined to work out. So I think, you know, the takeaway for me has been the idea of continuing to persevere and sometimes just letting go.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm also glad, and I, you know, I, we talked a, a while back, of, you know, about this a little bit, but I'm, I'm also glad that, you know, you're letting your name get out there a little bit, because again, you know, I, I, and it's, you know, having been in that position my entire life as a restaurateur and not a chef, you know, oftentimes I did feel that our role is, as multi-layered as, and as important to process as it is can, can be overlooked, and sometimes to our own detriment when, you know, it comes time to bring attention to a project that when we need that attention, you know, sometimes you need the chef for the, the press that you haven't generated for yourself. So I'm, I'm glad to see you start to be mentioned in, in these articles in a, in a prominent way. I think that's a really positive development and people should know who you are. You're, you're a fantastic operator. So let's talk about Camp 4. Um, you've teamed up again here with, with a couple of two veteran chefs. Um, of Elaine Ducasse restaurant experience, and I think one of them previously worked for, with you, the pastry chef that worked with you at, at Nightshade. But you're getting, you know, some really, really like buzzy, buzzy stuff. People are excited about this place. I've seen pictures, I haven't been there yet, but it looks looks really beautiful. I sent the link to my son Bryce and his girlfriend who are foodies, and they are making reservations for this week. Place looks beautiful, man. Elegant, simple, clean. I love, I love the style. So Eater describes it as a a French bistro, but it sounds to me like you've also merged some of the elements of uh, the restaurant that was formerly at that location, Nightshade. Is that accurate? Or just talk about a little bit of what Camp 4
1: is. So the concept Camp 4, and I think Chef Max, so it's actually, and this is very unique because, you know, I, I had a previous working relationship with Max, who, who is a savant when it comes to pastries, but is also equally talented on the savory side. And so they're actually co-chefing. These two chefs who met, they're actually co-chefing. So, you know, the idea of pride of work versus ego is very evident, I think, of what they do, because very rarely do you see a restaurant that has a co-chef marquee. So the, the greatest story that I can, des- the way I can describe it is what Max told me when he was kind of pitching me the idea of, of doing it when I approached him about the space is, One of the chefs, Lijo is from a place called Kerala, India, which is southwest India coastal city. And he told me this story on a Zoom call when they were still in Thailand. He said, imagine three, you know, classically trained French chefs are on a boat and they get marooned on this seaside village in India. And they want to open a French bistro, but they have to do it with local ingredients. Imagine." And I just kind of was taken to a place. And literally, that was the pitch. No menu, no describe what it is. And then we, we kind of launched the restaurant. We were tasting food up until the last probably like 24 hours of opening. Menus, I think, arrived to print the day of our first opening. And it really is a bistro menu. It's a very broad menu. And it is 90, I would say, 3 to 5% French, extremely classic technique, but all of the spices that they're using in the food are actually were directly importing from farms in India. That when Lijo went home before he came to LA, and it's his first time ever coming to the US, he basically set out and just drove around to all the farms in his in the region surrounding his hometown and was meeting with spice purveyors and things like that and identifying you know the pepper that we use for our steak au poivre is basically an ungraded pepper, meaning that they go, it's Malabar pepper, they go, they basically extract the pepper from a tree. It literally, no size, shape, no grading, everything goes into a bag and it's shipped directly to our to our door. So a very unique flavor because sometimes, you know, places are using a very select grade of pepper. And then we take that, it's untoasted, we actually toast it on site, mortar, pestle it, and use it in the food. So the the, I guess, South Asian elements are subtle and throughout there's a couple dishes that it pops through, but a lot of the food it's extremely subtle. And, you know, Max also said he's like French food is amazing and they work for one of the greatest French chefs in the world, but they're like a lot of times it's very decadent, it's very rich and it doesn't have a flavor, you know, a spice flavor profile. So they're just adding that few percent of spice into, you know, instead of butter, maybe it needs a pepper.
0: Maybe it needs a salt or a different uh, spice. That sounds fascinating. It reminds me a little bit of a place. They opened up a branch in L.A., but I knew the original owner of Jean Goutal in New York opened La Coloniale. And it was French, Asian inspired. And, you know, reminds me a little bit of, of what you're talking about here, but it sounds fantastic. Cyrus, what, what, what dish is most requested? What's the, what's the top selling dish right now?
1: The chicken is probably the number one dish. And if you look at our, our Instagram profile, it's, it's a phenomenal dish. They essentially it's, you're eating half a chicken and they basically take, they, they butcher the chickens every night. They take all of the dark meat, they trim, trim all the wings and remove the bones. They take the dark meat, like the thigh meat, all that. They make it into a mousse with, you know, some masala spices, some truffle. They pipe that back under the skin of the breast. And then that's aged or it's basically roasted and you almost get this kind of like a Peking duck skin. And then, so you're basically eating the light and the dark and that mousse acts to keep the breast extremely moist. They take everything else and they make that into basically a jus that is then put on top of the chicken. So when you get this dish that looks, you know, succinct and small, a lot of technical effort. But, you know, when I tell people that, hey, that you're actually eating half a chicken because that is everything from a half a chicken right in front of you. And it looks
0: like just a breast. You're killing me, man. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds so good. We've got to get you out. So every... Prices on everything, as we have been experiencing from the gas pump to the grocery store, are, are you know just skyrocketing. And of course, you know our operating costs in restaurants, you know from labor to food to to supplies to you know to go containers. I mean everything's through the roof. So your full service there, right? I mean there's table service, post yep. at the door, or you at the door celestia Ever. just whomever. somebody's yeah. at the door how how are you handling the model now cyrus in terms of trying to improve the margin where it's a challenge because we can only we can only raise prices you know so, so much, much uh, right. before the customer is just gonna you know just not be able to uh, to stomach that so what do you how do you look at this model
1: well, I think first is that's something where, what you've mentioned is something that's worth speaking on. And I, I give people this very specific egg, example. I think LA or New York has the the pizza versus the Metro. I just was reading about that, like that that index where they look at the price of a slice versus the price of a Metro ride. And, ride, And I think for the first time, the slice has actually outpaced the price of a Metro ride, right? And so I would tell people this story is when I opened Lock and Key in LA, minimum wage was $8. A well, a well cocktail drink, of a decent well, you know, we weren't pouring like a Gilby's vodka or a gin, which is your $2 plastic bottle We're pouring something decent, was $8. From 2013 to 2015, or 2015, 16, 17, the, the minimum wage price went from $8 to 15. And now we're going to $16.50. So it's more than doubled. But I can't charge you $16 for that same well drink. Maybe I can get up to 12. But right, so it's looking at that margin. So right and depending now, on whether it's
0: Koreatown, yeah, the Arts District, or Beverly Hills, Hollywood. exactly you know, location matters,
1: exactly. So, you know, I think the Arts District is definitely becoming the dining mecca of LA, and that kind of was happening prior to the pandemic. You've got some amazing restaurants, you know, Bavel set it off. Now you've got Bestia, you've got Damien, you've got us, you've got Girl and the Goat, you've got Cha Cha Cha. So I think people are, you know, ready to spend. The, the bigger challenge that we're facing now outside of that is the labor cost. People, you know, expect to get paid significantly more. The labor talent pool that people are willing to work, I've never seen it as, as rough. And I've been telling my managers, you know, as a restaurateur, as an owner, we, we've got years and experience in interviewing people. And we're, we've got a thick skin when it comes to reading 100 resumes, landing on 25 that you want to interview. And out of that 25, four, you give a try, maybe one gets a job. And that was before, and now it's maybe you don't even get a hundred resumes and the 25 you get, it's, you know, I'm not ashamed to say it. We have people that are working in our kitchen that have never worked in a restaurant before that these two great young chefs are taking a shot at and they're home cooks for lack of a better term, that they're training at this level. And, you know, people are working 15 hours and I'm always coming in every Wednesday saying, we got to get overtime down. We can't, you know, can't run like this. But the model right now has literally looked at that. We we've adjust prices incrementally along the way. I'm really looking at ways to, you know, modify the labor. So we're not hitting so much overtime and it takes a constant management. And that management was significantly easier pre pandemic because the ability to get more hands on deck was easier. You weren't facing all these external pricing pressures. So it really takes a constant management. And, you know, I I've told everybody, I don't expect, you know, in the first six months to be profitable. You know, we expect to make money and, and cover cost while we fine-tune this model. And there are a lot of dials to be turned. And so, you know, whether it's looking at a cleaning supply or a cleaning service or changing your hours of operation, you know, by 30 minutes you know, we're looking at every metric and we are in unprecedented times. I can tell you that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, and you alluded to it as well, but, you know, these whatever the the pandemic accelerated stuff that was already in the pipeline, we were, we were facing, you know, labor shortages well before the pipeline, we saw the minimum wage increasing and we knew that, you know, front of the house starts getting more than the the cook is not going to be happy to get you know, your line cook's not gonna be happy to get what the server's making and because he's because the server's getting tips. And right. you know, we opened Post and Beam in 2012, probably around the same time you did lock and key and saw the labor costs go up. We started with you know two or three hostesses at the door, and by 2018 it was me you know, right and running to the kitchen to check the line. So um so on on that note, as a as a restaurant tour, I know you know I had certain pet peeves. Going into the dining room, you you know, always there pre-service, but light adjustments, music adjustments constant throughout the night, you know, making the rounds, of course, touching tables, keeping an eye on what's going on with guests is just a regular part of, of the maintenance, keeping an eye on the pickup line, making sure the tickets are not, you know, there aren't too many tickets across the board, food's not dragging. But I'm curious how you, how you read the room when, when you're working the dining room on a, on a particular night. What's, what's your mode of operation Cyrus? How do, you, how, how do you approach service from the uh, restaurateur owner standpoint?
1: I think, you know, for me it has always been, again, it's a dinner party. First and foremost, I'm looking at, I'm looking at everyone's facial expressions and I'm really just looking at, you know, how is the staff feeling today? what's the energy in the room. And then from that, you know, we, we run our lineup. I've got a maitre d who's, who's in-house. You know, I've got a bar manager. I've got the chefs. And then it really is just managing the fine details. You know, I'm not afraid as an owner to jump in and bust a table just so people know that the table needs to be bust. And I, I think in the very beginning of, of business, you really got to have all hands on deck. And that means me as well. But that service, you know, the model that we've set ourselves, we've set a very high bar for ourselves with CAM4, which is we want Michelin star sh- service that is not pretentious or stuffy. And I, I've I always used this line. There was a British Airways commercial from years ago. And the tagline was, you know, a guys on an interna- international flight, he falls asleep, he wakes up, there's coffee and, and, and tea, you know, sitting in front of him. And it just says, British Airways, the best service anticipates the guest needs, right? So they knew he was about to wake up and they, they got him served. And so I've told everybody that is the model to great hospitality. It really is reading and anticipating. So it is a constant just being on the floor, being present and observing in order to try to kind of anticipate those needs.
0: Yeah. So that, you know, our, our business pays off in, you know, interesting ways. I mean, obviously, the financial success is essential because you can't keep the doors open, you can't keep people employed. But you you had a, a, a quote that I that I, that resonated with me. You said, quote, when you see the customers in the seats and you hang out with your staff and you see that you're providing for a lot of people, your family as well, and creating all these opportunities for people to meet and gather and mingle, those are the rewards. And quote. And I read an article recently about, you know, just the role that restaurants play in our society. We celebrate, we mourn first dates, you know, wedding. I mean, it's you name it. Everybody can relate to the restaurant experience. But and again, as I said, you know, financial success is essential. But can you just elaborate a little bit on that feeling of walking around the room and and, and the sense that you are, you know providing that kind of environment you're hearing that laughter the room has that certain sound that plates are clanging there's that energy what's that feel like how does that make you feel as the operator
1: i mean i think that is the i guess the the hard hard metric hard to hard to measure metric right of success in a restaurant and i think coming out of especially coming out of what we went through the last two years, I think it's all that much more important, giving people the opportunity to gather. Right before we opened, we sat down, I had a couple of friends who, who stopped by unannounced and we just sat down and we were tasting food, testing food and a few of the people I hadn't met. So it was a group of four of us and I was just taken back. This is the first time I've actually sat down in a restaurant in years. And the conversation went from, you know, a couple of us are new, new parents from, you know, rearing our children to what the last couple of years are like, to business, to cocktails, to do you like a Negroni with more Campari or less. And so we had a conversation that went literally, you know, across every topic. And we all left that moment all kind of like laughing and just texting each other saying, this was great, right? We just got to all sit down and do this wonderful thing. and reminded me even more so that that is what you, what we're really providing here, right? We're providing food, we're providing drink, but we're also providing an opportunity for people to connect. And, and to me, that, that is, you know, very rewarding, you know, looking at my staff and seeing them, you know, make money and, and being able to take care of their families and having staff that, you know, starts a family or creating those opportunities, you know, that's the second part that, you know right there. It's like creating both of these opportunities. And it, it is that. it's you're, We're creating experiences, memories, and opportunities for people to celebrate, opportunities for people to make a living, you know, who may be otherwise an actor or actress. You, you've done business in LA, you've probably got some talent who work with you that are on TV now, might be in movies. And to see that this paid their rent, you know, their whole way through that experience of trying to make it and go out to all these auditions, and then now they've become a successful person. So, extremely rewarding. Not always the most efficient way of making a living, <laughs> but uh, it, you're doing that, all right. Yeah, but that, but that value, I think you know, you can't. I can't put a price tag on 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 that. That is just that is, I think, the more rewarding part, honestly.
0: Absolutely, man. And you know the the expression, "How can we miss you if you don't go away?" You know, the last couple of years, we haven't been able to have that experience, man, and and how much, you know, you realize that you miss it. I mean, staying at home was cool. Not having to get dressed was cool for a minute, but boy, when you can start to take that mask off and have a cocktail next to that friend of yours and just, you know, have an evening like the one that you described, you realize how much, uh, how much you miss that and how vital those, uh, those spaces are that provide that opportunity. So lastly, Cyrus, as you as you emerge and your profile grows, which I think it's just going to continue to do, I know mentoring as a as a black man, you know, I'm seeing more uh people of color getting into our industry, not just as chefs, but as operators as well. How do you approach mentoring? I know in the past, you know, what I've tried to do is not speak <laughs> as much necessarily from the things that I have that I advise folks to do as as much as what not to do because there are a lot of mistakes that can be made in our industry but what how do you approach offering advice and mentorship? so you know my entire way through
1: undergraduate and even graduate school i was always part of a group that provided mentorship i think when i was an undergraduate it was a group called making transfer easy when i was working with hill harper we did your his manifest your destiny program summer empowerment academy i was kind of one of the first people that helped launch that with him but we we're taking sixth graders out of inner city and or sorry eighth graders going into ninth grade and dealing with that transition. So mentorship has always been important to me. And, you know, that was also one of the biggest, and, you know, I spoke with you during the pandemic, things that were going on in the background for me, and you were gracious enough to take phone calls and give advice. And for me, that was one of the biggest things out of, I think, the, the idea of, you know, what the George Floyd moment meant to any one of us individually and what it meant to the society as a whole. I always operated from the, I let my business speak for itself. I never wanted to be in the limelight. I wanted it to be about the brand, right? I didn't want it to be about, you know, me per se. But then I was taken back with who do we have to, who does a young brother have to look up to, right? Lock and key, successful business. A lot of people did not know it was black owned, black, you know, conceived. They thought I was just, oh, it's another bar in Koreatown owned by Koreans that's you know, embracing the culture and, and kind of profiting off of it, whereas it's me. And I, I could stand in a room next to 100 people, and they wouldn't know I was owner Lock and Key, and I was fine with that. But then when I really thought about it is, what if a young DJ wants some advice on opening a bar or negotiating a contract? He needs, or they need, or she needs to be able to tap in with somebody or know where to go, at least to ask. So a big part about me stepping forward is basically making myself available to that is I want people to know that, hey, if we get a, you know, if we get some great success with cam and Lock and Key has had good success, you should know that there's a resource that exists and I'm open and available, whether it's, you know, sending an email or showing up at the restaurant to give, to give that advice and that experience, because that brain trust is what it's all about.
0: Yeah, man. Well said. Cyrus Bachem, we've got Lock and Key, Camp 4, two of his places, Camp 4 being the newer one in the Arts District, and uh, I want to thank you, man. I'm really, really proud of you, brother, and uh, I love what you're doing, man, and uh, I can't wait to see you next, next visit to L.A. I'm making a beeline for your spot, man. Thank, thank you for you. taking the time. Thank you. I appreciate you. So... This segment of the show is how we move, and the lovely lady joining me is Ambassador Shabazz. What's up?
2: How dost thou be? <laughs>
0: you know, I'm moving, grooving, and uh, stretching when need to, so I don't pull anything. <laughs>
2: <laughs> That's all I about that you. Too. That's the same for all of us, I think, right now, how to bend and turn and, and get back to where you are, at least recognize yourself, you know, after all of this. This was really, really a magnificent, you know, interview and exchange, I would say, two generations, you know, listening to you and kudos to his parents and their approach to exposing their children to their their breadth in the world, you know, breadth and breadth in the world, you know, and, you know, how one moves is always, always reveals the tableau of options and choices and opportunities and how one wants to express themselves, no matter the industry. And, you know, I'm thinking about you and how I've watched you over the decades and so the question is that you know for you as a generational restaurateur in the same ways that you chart and manifest and bring to life your unique ideas and and visions for concepts and it's not easy I mean I watch you give birth and and twist and turn and and but the outcome is always something that we are the beneficiary of it so spending time with this young man, Mr. Bachan, uh, how does that resonate for you when listening to such an unrestricted realizer? You know, what, what
0: occurs to me is his clear vision that is yeah. not obstructed by, you know, some of the things that I felt maybe were challenges along the way for me. You know, the industry has evolved in a way also, that makes room for an operator like him. But, you know, his his conscious choice, I guess, to, you know, remain low-key, behind-the-scenes, not known necessarily, you know, that was not how I operated. I, I was very much in the room and very much a part of how I thought it was important to market whatever particular business I was involved in, however few opportunities there may have been along the way to do that in the way in which I might have wanted to, I still felt it was important to have a presence that was a visible presence and a known presence. And, you know, and to hear him talk about, you know, in in terms of the mentoring, you know, to use the example of a DJ that may have a desire to open the bar and here's the owner, potentially standing five feet away from you who happens to be a person of color and, and you don't know it. For that reason, it is also uh, a value for him to make himself known. But I, I just I love his approach and uh, I love his lack of restraint and yeah. his, his desire to not be contained by any uh, preconceived ideas about what his background or ethnicity or mixed ethnicity should uh, mean that he should do.
2: Well, first of all, your is is always what it is. And so when you're mindful, I think he even referenced the balance of the marketplace. You know, how much of it is about him being visible versus the ideas being visible. But then also realizing once you have the business set, you have to be visible so that others like you know that you can actually bring forth any of these aspirations and these goals and these wishes and not feel so isolated. I think that you both do and approach things similarly, it's just different era and times. You know, when we were growing up, it was essential, otherwise we were invisible, right? Now you can actually be invisible and yet ever-present. Right so it's just how you have to navigate in different spaces and if you're choosing places like Los Angeles with the fusions of culture and food doesn't really need a match at the front door no one needs to really know in some of the spaces he's in and i think that's what we talk about we're not removing our pride or presence as people of the diaspora but if you're fancy if you're intrigued if your curiosities want to venture We also have that entitlement to represent in that kind of way. I I also, growing up when you grew up, there are people who would expect me to show up a certain way and would would be surprised if I didn't always toe the same line. I may have had similar sentiments, but I don't always think I'm supposed to show up in duplicate or, or in some kind of stamped way to represent until I do. Right. But I, I come, I also come from the origins of exploration of expression, how that shows up. None of it has to deplete from who I am. It's just my, my composition of interests always want to figure out where's the natural way to make something plain. I mean, or express something.
0: Right. And, you know, it also occurred to me too, you know, and knowing how you know you gravitate you personally gravitate towards places where you tend to know somebody close to the places that you know i know that you like to go and you would help, you know always you know help me to discover something interesting what was a place on 3rd in LA where it had the great lamb burger that what was that <laughs> Fiddler.
2: fiddlers. Fiddlers.
0: Fiddlers. fiddlers
2: fiddlers fiddlers armenian background armenian lebanese it was, I mean, you did not need a condiment because they it had a fusion of what was Mediterranean and Middle Eastern. I, although they themselves were nationally um, Armenian, but the food was just for me, no matter what the cuisine was, breakfast, lunch, or dinner. But it was the hospitality, you know, that it was home away from home. It, they provided the food for my daughter's shower. And I didn't ask for it, they did it. You know, when we lost my mom and I got back to Los Angeles and could just sit in a corner somewhere, it was like being able to do that because it was right out my door, right front door. So really cool places. I think for me, it's knowing the owner alone is not it. It's the, it's the owner who feels like he or she is part of the community. And they're, they know exactly what you need for the most part when I would walk into any restaurant, whether it's in the United States, or abroad and if it's a place I frequent I don't have to order anything off the menu they kind of know my thing and even if I go there and I'm thinking I'm going to get something else when they come over with my thing I just surrender to the thing yeah, yeah. <laughs> right because yeah, it, yeah.
0: it, it, it's it's the it's the comfort and the familiar yeah. hug even if it's That's it, exactly it could right. be a physical hug it could be a you know That's exactly a spiritual right. hug but
2: it's there's the something to that yeah, there is, you know, and I think about it just even when we talk about New York, in Los Angeles, they know Roscoe's and they don't know that the origination of the the chicken and waffles came from Dickie Wells, Wells restaurant in New York, and that was a branch that uh, moved to the West Coast. But the, Wells is where my mom surprised me with my 10th birthday um, party, you know with all the folks in Harlem and New York that would come. And then of course, you know, the cellar in my teen years and when my mother needed to move through there and then all of us having grown up with Alberta. So these are all people like front of the room. You know, as little kids in Westchester County, New York on Thursday nights, my mother, we would all take, get everybody bathed and into their footsie pajamas. And we would go to a the neighborhood diner which was, the owner was Gus, the a Greek guy, right? And we would have a little section, he would have it waiting for us and we would pile in as a tribe <laughs> and he would have food. So yeah, we knew the owners, but the owners loved their houses. They loved you sitting down at their tables, no matter where, where it was. And I don't know if you ever got to know Copeland's in Harlem so when my mom was in the hospital for that whole month he just showed food was just coming in and then that's where we did her her repast and it just you know so for me it's really significant and while living here in in Louisville Kentucky my first couple of years you know I put on all that weight drinking sweet tea and and everything else that didn't have a vegetable nearby until I discovered <laughs> I discovered great place to eat great place to find foods and put your elbows up on the table. And I find myself whether the food is Persian or Italian or Ethiopian or Southern gourmet that I realized when I was thinking about this conversation, I know all those owners too, right? So I think it's not just the food because the food is magnificent in each of these places. It's the heart. It's meeting the heart when you walk into the threshold. If you're leaving your home to go someplace else to eat, it has to feel like a home away from home.
0: Heart, and it's the heart that you bring to, you know, that I always look so forward to.
2: Well, thank you for saying that. Yeah. I think it's a world that we're all yearning to rejoin right now. Yeah. Right. I think whether the hug is is virtual through these platforms and the corner table, or you get to walk through the threshold of a door, a home or a restaurant, we're looking for that. We want to do it safely, but. It really does matter, I said to someone, I miss my two-sided hug, you know, one left and right. I miss, you know, that chest bump when you get up close, you know, with someone. And how do we get back to that in a safe way, but not not risk our heart's connection anymore?
0: Ambassador Shabazz and how we move socially, safely.
2: That's exactly right, (laughs) that's exactly right. Good to see you. You too.